Gresham College presents Artificial Intelligence by Professor Martin Thomas. This is, this is a big topic and uh, I shall be covering at a, a high level the, the computing aspects, the philosophical aspects, uh, some of the ethical issues, um, some of the economic issues and towards the end uh, looking at the question that has been raised is whether actually artificial intelligence is a, an existential threat to, to humanity. So what I hope to do is to leave some time for questions, but uh, if you have a burning question which you haven't managed to, uh, to ask during the question session, uh, the cyberliving.uk website will have a discussion forum running and I'll do my very best to answer um, as many of the questions that turn up on that discussion forum as, as I can uh, in, in a few days' time when I've had a chance to look at them and, and to see what the main topics are that are being raised. So the story starts, as so much does in computing, with Alan Turing who wrote a, a seminal paper in the journal Mind back in 1950 on the question, can computers think? And if they can, the issue is how could we tell? Because there is a, a, a basic problem in philosophy, the, the notion of, of solipsism, that, that you, the only thing that you know about whether somebody has mental states is about yourself. You can't really tell whether anybody else has mental states. It's, um, Turing's answer to this was, was essentially to brush the, the lengthy philosophical debate aside and to say that it's a, a polite convention that we assume that everybody else thinks in much the same way as we do because otherwise there wouldn't be a lot of point talking to them. And so... Alan Turing changed the question from can computers think to a question, can we tell from talking to a computer whether it's a computer or a person? And he invented a, a game called the imitation game where you have uh, two people conversing with a questioner. Uh, the questioner can't see them. One, one of the pe people is a, a man and one is a woman and the job of both of them is to attempt to confuse the uh, questioner as to which one of them is the man. The questioner has to work out uh, which is the man by asking questions and analysing the answers. And Turing pro proposed this with the rider. If we replace one of those people with a computer, would it make it easier to tell which was the man and which was the computer? or which was the woman and which was the computer. And it was that analysis, the can we really tell the difference between a person and a computer through conversation, that turned into the, the famous Turing test. Now, in Turing's paper, he looked at a number of objections that are frequently raised to the whole notion that computers might ever be able to think. And these are the main issues. The, the theological objection that, that thinking is a, is a God-given gift and that it's not given to machines. The heads-in-the-sand <laughs> objection. These are, these are Turing's terminology for the objections, uh, which is essentially the notion that it would be absolutely terrible if machines could think, and therefore, clearly, they're never going to be able to. Uh, 
there's the mathematical objection, the, the notion that there are various things that are not computable, that a finite state machine cannot do. And Turing knew that. He'd, he'd done quite a lot of analysis of, of that uh, computability problem. Uh, and, and people also looked at the work of the mathematician Gödel and, and his um, demonstration about the fact that certain true things can't be proved from within the system within which they're, they're true. Uh, uh, and there are a number of other mathematical theorems that point in the same direction. So there's a sort of Gödel says no uh, objection that, that gets raised. There's the argument from consciousness, the notion that you, you need to be conscious in order to be able to think, and that machines quite self-evidently is the argument, couldn't be conscious. The argument from various disabilities. Oh, well, you may be able to get it to do this, but you couldn't ever get it to do that. You couldn't get it to write a sonata or, or to know that it had write it or to tell a good joke or lots of specific disabilities. There's Lady Lovelace's objection. Augusta Lovelace was um, the programmer, essentially, who, who worked with Charles Babbage. And she wrote a, a wonderful analysis of the potential capabilities of, of that um, machine, Babbage's engine. And in that, her argument is that the machine can only do what we have programmed it to do. It cannot originate anything itself. There's the argument from continuity in the nervous system, that the brain isn't a finite state machine. It, it actually behaves according to different physics. It's a continuous system. And there's the argument from the informality of behaviour, that, that the way that people behave is not a, a set of rules, and that, therefore, a computer following a set of rules could never end up behaving the way that people behave. Turing answered all those objections in his paper, and I, I strongly recommend that you read it. The, the paper that I have produced that goes with this lecture contains all the references that you need and a lot more discussion than I'm able to give here. Uh, but that one is, is well worth following up because if you have any of those issues, any of those reservations about whether machines will ever be able to think the way humans think, um, then it's worth looking at Turing's arguments because he did demolish all of them. Turing's conclusion is worth actually just, just read, reading out quickly. We may hope that machines will ever eventually compete with men in all purely intellectual fields, but which are the best ones to start with? Even this is a difficult decision. Many people think that a very abstract activity, like the playing of chess, would be best. It can also be maintained that it's best to provide the machine with the best sense organs that money can buy, and then teach it to understand and speak English. This process could follow the normal teachings of a child. Things would be pointed out and named, etc. Again, I do not know what the right answer is, but I think both approaches should be tried. We can only see a short distance ahead, but we can see plenty there that needs to be done. Now, that, that was a hugely prescient conclusion for a paper written in 1950, because that's exactly the way that artificial intelligence has developed since. Ten years later, Marvin Minsky at, at MIT was asked by the US Department of Defense to provide a survey of what had been achieved in artificial intelligence. 
And his paper is still required reading for students of artificial intelligence because it, it firstly, covers all the techniques that were then in use for artificial intelligence and explains them clearly. But the really impressive thing is those are the techniques essentially that are still in use now. And so it is a terrific introduction to artificial intelligence as it, as it currently exists. And Minsky's view of what intelligence is was that it was essentially the, the complex things that we, we admire but don't understand. And Turing had said exactly the same thing in a, in a, a radio um, third programme discussion back in 1951. The, the transcript is in the, in the Turing archive and I've given a reference to it. Uh, and he said much the same thing ten, 10 years before Minsky, that one might be tempted to define thinking as consisting of those mental processes that we don't understand. And he went on to say, if this is right, then to make a thinking machine is to make one that does interesting things without us really understanding how it's done. Now, if you were to accept that as a definition, then we've achieved it because we've certainly got computer systems that do interesting things and we don't really understand how, how they're done. And as we shall see uh, later on in the lecture, uh, most complex machine learning systems uh, fall into that category very clearly. And there's an interesting parallel with, with uh, Arthur C. Clarke's one of Arthur C. Clarke's laws of prediction, particularly the, the third one, where he says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And, and what we're really saying is that if you don't understand how something is done and it seems wonderful, then you, you tend to attribute to it all kinds of characteristics and and magical powers. And it may be that that is the position that we're in with, with thinking, with reasoning at the moment, that, that once we really understand how the brain does it, it will seem trivial. And we'll recognize that we could easily replicate that in a machine. Now, a lot has happened in the past few years. Uh, by 1997, the idea that, that Turing had that perhaps we should start with chess, uh, and that looked a long way off. People for a very long time were predicting we would never be able to produce a computer program that could beat uh, a really skilled human playing chess. Uh, but IBM's Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in a series of six matches. And it was a, a devastating moment for, for the world of chess. And, and Gary Kasparov has, has written quite movingly about it. Uh, interestingly, uh, already back in, in 1951, uh, Christopher Strachey, who went on to found the Oxford Computing Laboratory, uh, was already programming the Manchester computer, the, the early Manchester computer, the very first stored program computer to, to play drafts, to play checkers. So already that, that whole process of, of working on, on games had started right back then. 
when, when chess was, was cracked, people said, oh, but you know, Go is years and years, decades in the future, because it's so much more complex. Um, and, of course, what happened was that, as we shall, shall see in a moment, uh, the Go problem has, has been solved as well. Meanwhile, uh, in 2011, IBM's Watson beat two champions in the uh, television quiz show, Jeopardy, uh, which is, is much like solving cryptic crossword clues. It's, it looks much more like human intelligence than something as narrow as, as playing a particular game to a very high level of skill. But in 2016, Go was, was beaten. Um, AlphaGo beat the top Go professional, Lee Seedol. And then th just this year, uh, AlphaGo beat the world's Go champion. And the thing that has really impressed the, the Go players is that uh, AlphaGo has been inventing moves that have never been seen before by the top players that are, are regarded as entirely novel and quite beautiful in the context of, of the game. So, are we getting close to passing that Turing test? How close have we come to human level understanding? And the kind of questions that, that Watson was answering in, in Jeopardy uh, are questions like these. Um, a porter joining a building where mummy often served tea, what is it? Or the, the number one of the first 20 that uses only one vowel four times. Um, more challenging questions than, than the, the very narrow playing of a game, you would think. And then uh, a number of, of standard human tests of, of developmental ability have been tried on, on various artificial intelligence systems. Um, and various of these uh, systems are, are now scoring very well on, on those tests. I mean, initially as, as good as a, a four-year-old in terms of, of uh, being able to, to understand uh, the language, un understand and respond to in the, in the context of the tests. Uh, and in fact, very recently, some Japanese um, researchers have, have claimed that on a particular set of tests that they were using, uh, their system was performing as well as, as a bachelor's level graduate. So progress is, is being made in those sort of areas, but, but they tend to be um, either very narrow areas of, of artificial intelligence. As I've said, where you're, you're focusing on a, on a very specific, tightly constrained problem. Uh, or they're, they're not doing ever so well in a broader sense. Now, there, there are a number of uh, methods that are used in artificial intelligence systems, but the, the one that has really made massive progress in recent years and, and which is turning up in, in a very wide range of systems is, is machine learning. And this is, is learning from data, um, producing neural nets that can, can analyze large amounts of data 
and uh, spot patterns, and from those patterns actually be able to, to recognise things. So it, it is essentially an attempt to build a computer version of a very simple model of how it is believed the human brain works. You, you build neurons, the, the components of, of the human brain, uh, in, in a computer. I'll, I'll show you in a moment. Um, they're, they're connected, and, and the connections are given different weights. And those weights are adjusted by training the system on a lot of data. Um, the uh, AlphaGo, for example, simply, I say simply, AlphaGo played itself at Go uh, hundreds of thousands of times and learnt from the experience of doing that. Uh, quite often machine learning systems are simply processing very large amounts of, of data from, from databases. And often uh, the data has had to be tagged by humans to say what it is. And so um, there, there is a lot of help that is being given to the system. Sometimes some, some systems are able to make re reasonable advances with unguided machine learning. But in, in most applications, like, for example, um, recognising the face of somebody uh, on a Facebook page, um, what is actually happening is, is that the neural net behind it has been trained by looking at pictures that have already been tagged by people who have posted those and said who the individual is. So it's, machine learning is sophisticated pattern matching. And it's used in, for example, computer vision and and uh, speech recognition systems. Now the, the simple neural net is the basic building block, is, is the multi-layer perceptron, and, and this is a, a simple diagram to illustrate that, where you've got uh, input neurons that are connected to um, hidden neurons with, with full connectivity, which are then connected to output neurons. And, and the basic neuron uh, is, it, it has a number of inputs. Each of those inputs has uh, a weight, uh, a, a value that is, is given as, as to how strong the signal is that is, is coming on that particular channel. And and there will typically then also be a, a bias weight, which is a, a, a fixed bias, going into this, this plus symbol, which represents the way in which all the inputs are actually aggregated to lead to a single value, which will then go into some calculation, the, the functional unit there, to produce an output. And the training process adjusts the weights so that Gradually, the system gets better at meeting whatever criteria it is that you're using in order to determine whether it's doing well. Now, this is just a basic building block. And, and in a, a serious machine, in a serious program, you, you need, in order to be able to achieve the kind of sophistication that we're already getting with, with things like the, the Alexa voice recognition system, the, the ability, you, you need a lot of, of neurons, you need deep neural nets. And a lot of additional complexity is being added to them. It's not just that you have a lot of layers 
uh, of these hidden layers, but that you have hierarchies of layers, that you have uh, the ability to do feedback, you have a lot of different weightings being put on different layers at different levels of abstraction, and the, the amount of calculation that is going on at different points can be changed as well. So this is just a very basic model of what's happening, but the principles are still the same, that we're trying to model the way that the brain behaves out of the basic functions of, of neurons and, and their connections and the strength of those connections between the neurons. And we see machine learning in, in everyday life a lot now. Um, the, the kind of recommenders that you see on e-commerce sites, for example, saying you may be interested in so-and-so, the, the sort of chatbots that you see on e-commerce sites where, where customer service is, is trying to help you to uh, spend more money with that particular organisation. Um, voice recognition in the various systems that are now turning up in, in the house and, and on smartphones and on computers. Um, image recording and tagging on social media, as, as we've said. Uh, analysis of, of the high volumes of card transactions, spotting card fraud, you know, that's why your bank phones you up to say, you know, we think there's a suspicious transaction. Would you mind verifying the, the following transactions or your car's been blocked? Please call us. It's, it's not that a human has, has done that initially. It will be, it'll be a machine learning system that has picked that out. Um, money laundering analysis going the same way. Design of new drugs. Um, analysis of, of astronomical data all kinds of scientific work now being uh, supplemented by uh, machine learning systems because of the power of doing this, this analysis of very large amounts of data. Uh, medical diagnosis, uh, predictive policing, using the data that, that exists about um, crimes and, and about the precursors to crimes that enable the police to work out where crimes are most likely to happen and to position the response units in the appropriate places. And the same kind of thing is being done with, with ambulances. Uh, and most significantly for, for many people here, uh, many back office tasks in almost all organisations, all the things that go on uh, handling insurance claims, uh, mortgage applications, doing routine accountancy, supporting audits, all the kind of processing that, that makes businesses operate, most of that is susceptible to this sort of automation. And that's going to have some profound economic consequences. Now, there are, there are limitations to machine learning. There's, there's a a report that's well worth reading that the Royal Society has recently produced, very recently produced. And again, you'll find a reference in, in the paper that accompanies this lecture. And chapter six of that report lists the, the things that we, we don't yet know how to do really well with machine learning systems. The first five chapters describe how machine learning works and the applications and all the benefits that will come, uh, the way in which new services will, will be made available, the, the way in which new services will become cheaper, that 
the advice of that is currently expensive and has to be given by human professionals will become much cheaper and therefore available to, to everybody at a reasonable price. All those things. Chapter 6, uh, which they've rather optimistically uh, headlined and, and titled uh, A New Wave of Research, uh, is in fact a list of all the things that, that they don't know how to do yet. And, and they're pretty devastating. Um, Discovering cause and effect and not just correlations. What are the causal relationships between the, uh, things, that, between the, the patterns that you're seeing? Creating systems that can be understood, systems that can either explain how they have come to a decision that um, this mortgage should be rejected or um, this person should, should uh, not be released from prison or that... Uh, this person has, has a, a medical condition that uh, should or should not be operated on or should or should not receive this drug treatment. If, if those systems can't explain the basis on which the, the system has made the decision, it's very hard, impossible you may say, for a human to review that decision and really verify that it's performing the way that it should, that it's it's a decision that ought to be followed. And we're building systems now which not only don't have the capability to explain in simple terms the basis for the outputs from those systems, but we're building systems where even the people who have programmed them can't explain how the system has actually come to a particular decision because of the underlying complexity. You've got a system that is, is learning to recognise things, for example, and uh, on, on a very large number of tests, it will perform extremely well. But you don't really know how it's, how it's managing to achieve that performance. All you know is that it's adjusted all the weights on, on the neurons, on, on, on the links between the neurons in this very complex deep neural net. And, and it works at the moment on the test data. Um, and so you have a, a serious issue with verification. If, if we want to put these systems into safety-critical applications, like, like driverless cars, for example, and to rely on them, then we've got to crack this, this problem of understanding and verifying the performance of the systems. We have an issue that, that training these systems requires uh, the, the developers and the researchers to have access to a very large amount of data. And a lot of the data that would be really valuable is private data. It's personal data. It's data where we have serious concerns and, and there are legal constraints around the privacy of the data. So one of the research challenges is working out how we can make, for example, medical data on a large population available to train medical systems whilst nevertheless preserving the privacy of the patients in a way that means that, that they're willing to give consent to their data being used in that way. We, we have the problem of eliminating bias. The, a lot of the data that we have contains a lot of social biases. So if you, if you analyse a, a, the huge amount of data that exists on Twitter, for example, you find a lot of racism, you find a lot of sexism, you find all kinds of biases. And as I described in a, an earlier lecture, when uh, the, the Tay 
chatbot was put up on Twitter to uh, engage in conversation as if it was a teenage girl, uh, it very rapidly turned into a foul-mouthed racist that was pronouncing that it, it was very much in favour of Adolf Hitler and announcing that it was smoking cannabis in front of the police at the moment. And those systemic biases that exist in the training data sets could lead systems that are approving loans, for example, to actually carry across systemic biases which are unlawful, which if a human was, was agreeing a loan or, or refusing a loan on the basis of the particular characteristics that the machine learning system is using would be unlawful. It would be, be breaking the discrimination laws. But if we can't understand how the decision is being made, how can we tell? How can we manage to ensure that the way that we have decided that society needs to regulate itself can actually be applied to these new systems in this new world? That's another one of the big research challenges. And finally, of course, we need to make systems secure from cyber attack. And uh, that's a big topic in itself and, and one I've already talked about to a considerable extent, but it is an unsolved problem, of course, and it affects um, the uh, machine learning systems and, and more broadly artificial intelligence systems. Looking back to Turing, with his, his astonishing foresight, he, he pointed out that an important feature of a learning machine is that its teacher will often be very largely ignorant of what's going on inside, although he may still be able to some extent to predict his pupil's behaviour. Uh, you notice the sexist language, but this was 1950. Um, and this is, this is still a research problem all these years later. The, the question raised by that phrase, to some extent, is still a research question, but it was one that, that Turing had recognised was going to be an issue. So what's going to happen? Marvin Minsky thinks that IBM's Watson may turn out to be a really major advance because it's, it's bringing together a lot of different AI techniques and, and using them in, in combination. So it, it may be that, that we will see a significantly rapid acceleration of the capabilities of artificial intelligence systems. Richard and Daniel Suskind have written a, a book which um, is, is referenced and uh, they gave a, a Gresham lecture, um, lunchtime lecture, a few months ago, which is, of course, on the Gresham website and which I, I strongly recommend that you, you have a look at, um, which was, was called What Happens When Artificial Intelligence Meets the Professions? And they argue in, in their book and in their lecture that Within decades, the traditional professions will be dismantled. And they see that there will be profound, dramatic changes to lawyers, to doctors, to accountants, to estate agents, to bankers. And, and one striking example they give is, is that there is actually a, uh, an app now which has been given the appropriate uh, imprimatur by the Catholic Church 
to prepare for people for confession. Uh, although the, the Vatican has, has moved very rapidly to uh, explain that it must not be used as a substitute for confession. So a lot of people are going to find that, that their jobs are not secure, that, that they're being replaced by machines. Uh, this is, this is a, a recent analysis, some, some 2013 data that's been, been analysed and, and a labour force survey that essentially shows for all areas of the country that between 40 and 50% of all jobs are susceptible to being automated. That's massive. That is, is a huge impact. Who, who's going to win? The companies that automate jobs make much more profit. They, they become much more productive. They generate more money for their shareholders and, and a lot of it, of course, gets creamed off by the senior management. Who will lose? The, the people whose jobs are automated are, are clearly immediate losers and, and if it affects the, the quality of the work that is done because of some of the issues that I've already touched on, then maybe we all lose because maybe the quality of life deteriorates significantly. But it, it seems inevitable that, that this technology, like all technologies, all major technology steps, will create gr greater inequality because the people who are introducing, who are in charge of the technology, who are able to choose whether or not to introduce it, capture a very large part of the value that comes from introducing that technology. And of course the technology will create a lot of jobs, but they won't be jobs that the people who are displaced will necessarily be qualified to do. And so the social disruption could be enormous. The, the Royal Society carried out a survey that, um, that showed that, that the public don't, don't really understand what's coming, that uh, less than 10% of people had heard the term machine learning and less than 3% felt that they knew a, a fair bit about it. And of course, the introduction of these technologies is coming faster than we are solving the research problems. That's happening because there is huge commercial pressure to introduce these technologies and the politicians don't know how to regulate multinational companies anyway and they don't really understand the technology and, and the implications of it particularly well. And so trying to ensure that we control in a sensible way the introduction of these technologies into very wide swathes of society is a problem that just gets parked as too hard, particularly at the moment when we seem to be overwhelmed with problems that are too hard. And that, that brings me on to the ethical issues. How, how can society maximise and share the benefits of this wonderful new technology, this powerful new technology that could bring so many benefits in so many areas potentially um, reducing the need for work dramatically, potentially um, improving health care enormously, and 
many, many other social and, and individual and commercial benefits. How can we get those benefits while, while minimising the risks and, and sharing the risks out and sharing the benefits out? Who, who gets to decide? Who, who controls the technology? That's an issue I shall come back to in, in just a moment. There are questions about whether important decisions ought to be taken by technology if we don't understand how they're being taken. And as I said earlier, how, how do we maintain the, the societal norms that we have agreed are the decent way and the lawful way to behave in society, like the anti-discrimination legislation? And then you get the question of, where is it going to end? Could machines actually become more intelligent and more capable than humans? Alan Turing thought about this. And, and back in 1950, 1951, he concluded that the answer was yes, that the brain is essentially a machine, and that there is nothing that suggests that we won't be able to replicate it in every way um, artificially. So he demolished the objections and he concluded that we, we would be able to build machines that were more capable, as capable and more capable as humans. Um, but he pointed out that, that they couldn't be infallible, that fallibility is actually a necessary part of intelligence. And I can't go into the, the full details of that argument here, but again, it's, it's in the paper that accompanies this and you can follow it up in his writings. Consciousness, of course, remains a hard problem. Uh, can we build a, a brain that's conscious? And, and if we can, how would we tell? It, it's a huge, huge philosophical problem, consciousness. It is the hard problem. And, uh, and there are no good criteria for deciding whether something is conscious or not. So we won't necessarily know that a machine is, is actually conscious. Uh, because how could we tell? If it's behaving as if it's conscious, then we, we may have to assume that it is, uh, even though there will be very strong emotional barriers to accepting that, that it is, not least because we might start feeling we, we need to extend the human rights and animal rights legislation to, to machines that are, that are conscious and therefore capable of feelings and therefore presumably capable of suffering. And, and, and that again raises ethical issues about control over such machines. No one has yet come up with a convincing argument for saying that machines cannot ever become more intelligent than people. And so it raises a question that a number of leading scientists have started putting into the, the popular press, in, into the broadsheets, into general discussion, which is about the singularity. What happens when the machines overtake human intelligence? Because in principle, they could start designing new things, new machines that are more intelligent than they are, because if we can design machines that are more intelligent than we are, those machines ought, therefore, to be able to design 
better machines that are more intelligent than they are. And you could see a completely exponential growth in intelligence that would leave us far behind. And it raises the question of what would such machines think of, think of us? Would we be seen as a threat? Would we be seen as charming creatures to be kept as pets? What, what actually would be the future for humankind in, in that scenario? Stephen Hawking um, commented on, on the film Transcendence and, and said, are we really taking artificial intelligence seriously enough? And, and this is part of the article that he, he wrote. Looking further ahead, there are no fundamental limits to what can be achieved. There's no physical law precluding particles from being organised in ways that perform even more advanced computations than the arrangement of particles in the human brains. An explosive transition is possible. One can imagine such technology outsmarting financial markets, outinventing human researchers, outmanipulating human leaders, and developing weapons that we can't even understand. And he, he makes the point that whereas in the short-term the short impact of artificial intelligence depends on who controls it, the longer-term impact depends on whether it can be controlled at all. And he ends with this killing comment. If a superior alien civilization sent us a message saying, we'll arrive in a few decades, would we just reply, OK, call us when you get here, we'll leave the lights on? Probably not. But that's more or less what is happening with artificial intelligence. Now, other experts in artificial intelligence think that such very advanced systems are a very long way away, that we haven't really cracked the really fundamental problems of broad, deep artificial intelligence. But maybe we will. And, and so there, there is quite a big gamble going, going on here as to whether this is something that we can ignore, as, as some people will say, we really do need to focus on, on the short-term problems of how are we going to control the deployment of artificial intelligence in the short term to maximise the benefits and minimise the risks and share out the, the good things and, and share out the bad things appropriately, and, and that we can worry about the longer-term future later. But Stephen Hawking thinks maybe we can't. So here are my conclusions. Artificial intelligence is already disruptive. A lot of people are going to win. A few people are going to win a lot, and a lot of people are going to lose quite a lot that matters to them. Um, it's going to affect all of us in, in all sorts of ways. I don't think a completely free market is going to come up with the right answer here, because it, it won't be optimising the kind of things that may matter to most of us. Politicians are conflicted. They, they want to capture the, the short-term benefits of the technology and, and they don't necessarily um, 
either know about or, or necessarily even in, in, on the short term care about the, the medium term implications. So things are going to happen. It's going to be interesting. And one of the areas where it looks as though we're going to see things happening very quickly is in the area of driverless cars, uh, which I will be talking about in October. And I look forward to, uh, to seeing a number of you there. So thank you very much. And uh, questions? For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.